Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. At the end of this episode, there is a very illuminating conversation uh, with Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Venman, who a lot of people remember from, you know, impeachment world. But what people sometimes forget is that he is one of the foremost authorities in the country on the issue of Ukraine and relations with Russia. That's why he was at the National Security Council. And so we had a, a tremendous conversation where he got into a lot of things that I have not heard anywhere else. And I would encourage people to listen. So Ravi, you're back in New York. Yes, sir. And I just saw on the Instagram that you were chronicled in your hometown newspaper for your adult baseball team. Tell me all about this. Yes, thank you for asking, given that I asked you to before we started recording. I uh, was going <laughs> to ask you anyway, I promise. I, was I know ask you were, anyway. I know, I know. Uh, I'm sure. So yes, growing up, my dream was not to be in politics. My dream was to be written about in my hometown paper for playing baseball. And today, technically, that dream became a reality because I uh, am now a member of the Kansas City Hustlers, the new Kansas City team in the National Men's Adult Baseball League, which people don't know that is a thing. I've been to it, or at least you, I went to one of your games. Yeah, yeah you yeah. went to one of the games last year, and now we have this, this new team. Uh, it's mostly former college players. There's a couple of guys who were in the College World Series. And then there's me, who was a really good baseball player for a debater. Here we are in the midst of this uh, baseball lockout where there may not even be Major League Baseball this summer, which is horrible, uh, but at least it is delayed. And, you know, if you're in Kansas City, you can come and you can watch us play. We're pretty good. I mean, I'm not saying it ain't the Royals, but like we're pretty good. And also it's free. I mean, we are sponsored by Charlie Hustle, this great local apparel brand here. And as a result, it is, is free baseball for the people of Kansas City. So people can go to at KC Hustlers on Twitter and Instagram or, or Kansas City Hustlers.com where the, the schedule will eventually be. And, uh, you know, it'd be great. fun to have people come out. It's a 55-game summer regular season. Wow, that's a lot of games. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. Well, with that, now I know we're getting into the news of the week. I need to say I just came back from a trip uh, to New York City for Veterans Community Project. I was out there raising funds. I got in later last night, and then I woke up to two sick kids. I haven't had a chance to watch the State of the Union. I'm fully ill-prepared. So uh, we decided we would turn this into something fun, which is, Ravi, you're going to tell me what happened during the State of the Union. Well, I watched it twice, so I think I watched it for both of us now. Oh, good. And so there's some good news uh, and bad news. I'll start with the bad news. The bad news is that the viewership on the State of the Union is the lowest it's been, you know, at least as far as I could find. Uh, 27 million people watched this. 
compared to 37 million last year, 47 million the year before that. As you could imagine, Trump got really high ratings for his State of the Union addresses. The biggest one I could find most recently was the first Obama State of the Union address, which which went north of 50 million. So fewer people tuning in to the State of the Union. We could talk about why that is. But the good news is that the people who do, did tune in really liked it. 78% of people approved of the State of the Union address in the CBS poll. So people you know, were inspired. I think a lot of people left optimistic about our future because of the speech. And that was generally my impression from watching it. I would say I'm not generally the biggest fan of Biden, the public speaker, but I felt like this was a really good speech, both on paper and his delivery was pretty good. And so, Jason, I'm just going to walk you through a couple of things. You could stop me if you have questions about some of these. But he started this speech about Ukraine, as you'd imagine. And I thought this was really powerful in part because it was also a way to get Republicans to also cheer from the beginning, which I thought was really smart. And there were fewer Republicans there than you would typically see because of this requirement that people get a positive uh, negative COVID test to come. And so certain people like your home state senator, Josh Hawley, didn't show up because they felt like that was too onerous for them. But by and large, it looked kind of like a normal state of the address. People weren't wearing masks by and large. The cabinet members, a lot of the cabinet members weren't wearing masks. Biden wasn't wearing a mask. Kamala Harris wasn't either. So it looked kind of normal, which was cool. People cheered for most of the Ukraine stuff. People were wearing Ukrainian colors. He made some major announcements when it comes to Ukraine, uh, especially that they're going to be closing off American airspace to Russian flights. He talked about the impact of financial sanctions. He looked pretty strong on that. So I thought that was a really good start to the speech. It's interesting, like, you know, the Republicans stand up and applaud Ukraine while, you know, too many of them not actually standing up to Russia, right? So, I mean, like, I guess it's easy, you you know, you can cheer for Ukraine and somehow have cognitive dissonance about Russia. Yeah, and I think we'll come back around to this, but I do think, you know, I'm obviously like a broken record on this, but my dream is for the, the issue of democracy protection in the United States to be the most salient issue heading into the next election. And I think this Ukraine conflict is in a way an opening to talk to people at home about this. But I'll get back to that. Um, He talked about a couple of things I didn't know about. He is somebody who's been monitoring this Ukraine situation very carefully. He says the U.S. has worked with 30 other countries to release 60 million barrels of oil around the world. So basically to try to blunt the effect of any limited supply coming from Russia, which obviously supplies a, a huge amount of the natural gas and oil in the world, especially for Europe. He made some announcements on the COVID front, and I think his message in COVID was essentially, you know, it was both symbolic because we weren't wearing masks. It was kind of a packed house. Obviously, the CDC recently uh, issued new guidance, which essentially says that most parts of the country can roll back, you know, indoor dining, vaccine mandates and mask mandates. That certainly is what's happened in New York. He made an announcement that if you test positive for COVID, they'll immediately get you the antivirals, which I thought was really powerful, especially since there's a lot of people out there who think that there's this big conspiracy to only push vaccine-related treatment. And so this is, I think, a really big move to say, look, no, we're going to make this available to you. And it was both, I think, from a comms perspective important, but also I think this will help blunt the effects of COVID and the hospitalizations and deaths. He pushed for uh, the Bipartisan Innovation Act, which, you know, is to to help fund more R&D and build more domestic capacity for manufacturing. And there were certain parts of that that got bipartisan clapping and all that to the extent we even care about any of that. He did have some 
controversial moments. He said the answer is not to defund the police, it's to fund the police, which I think by and large, I, I, you know me, I don't really go on Twitter a lot, but I was monitoring Twitter during this and people were generally very positive and then people split at that point. And then people kind of got back into their cheerleading camps after that. But what, was he was he trying to kind of take it in a third direction? Was it sort of trying to say like, hey, you you actually do have to spend money on on these things? Yeah, he was he 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 coupled it with an explanation of the reforms that he wanted to see within police departments and basically was saying you need to fund these reforms. That was I think a flashpoint and he got a lot of republican applause on that as you can imagine. He was very populist on economics. He talked about the inflation crisis as in part a crisis of greedy corporations and he he said I'm not against capitalism, but he said he was basically against crony capitalism. So he was more populist than I think people are used to. And then he ended on what he thought were the bipartisan areas you could work with Congress on. And I think you'd find this really interesting. Number one, he talked about the opioid epidemic and how they could collaborate on that. Two, he talked about tackling mental health. And he he both connected it to the way tech companies are complicit in this, but also uh, including mental health care and insurance. He talked about support for veterans. So this was basically the Jason Kander portion of the speech. And then he talked about ending cancer as we know it, obviously something very personal to him. And so by and large, strong speech to me, what it did was signal that the Biden team understands like what has gotten them into some political hot water and have a plan to get out of it. Now, whether they execute that plan appropriately to me is a big question. I also think they have like sound governing priorities and they're focused on the right things. What what is the right going to like grab onto here? I mean, I guess it's going to be what he didn't talk about, or is it going to be the way he said something? Yeah, well, I just listened to the 11-minute rebuttal from Ben Shapiro. Thank you on uh, behalf of everyone. Yeah, it was, honestly, if you just wrote down like the 20 top sort of culture war mad libs and just jumbled them up, that's what it is. But essentially what he's saying is, these are his literal words from this, from the beginning of, of his rebuttal is, Uh, All of these crises that Biden are dealing with are his fault, whether it's inflation, whether it's Ukraine, yada, 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 right? All Biden's fault. Ladies and gentlemen, we gather here tonight to mourn the state of our nation because the state of our nation is pathetic. And it is pathetic in the main because of the president of the United States. And I think this is a good segue because I have a there's another Ben Shapiro quote I wanted to to use as a transition to Ukraine, because this is how they think about things. They think everything is Biden's fault and everything's liberals fault. Uh, and this is what he tweeted out in the, at the heart of the, the, the invasion of Ukraine. He goes, Russia and China are focused on expanding their spheres of influence via aggressive action. The West is focused on expanding its national debt and exploding the gender binary. Whatever advantages we have on an objective level are wildly undermined by our narcissistic idiocy. Now, I'll just point out one thing here, which is that Ben Shapiro was a supporter of the Iraq war and a cheerleader of it every step of the way. I think if there was one thing that undermined our ability to act in situations like Ukraine, it could be the fact that we have a populace and a military that is absolutely exhausted from fighting two separate, largely unwinnable wars. You know, it's possible Afghanistan was winnable, but we will never know because we took our time, attention, resources off the ball and invested in in Iraq because of people like Ben Shapiro. And he doesn't start with introspection to be like, you know what? Like, I've been responsible in part for where we find ourselves, right? Never mind the national debt, which is something that, as we've talked about, Republicans are as or more responsible for than Democrats. Never mind the fact that maybe one of the things that undermines us is the fact that 
We have a former president who wouldn't commit to a peaceful transfer of power and now is using a litmus test. Basically, every anti-democratic policy you could ever imagine as a litmus test. Maybe that undermines our standing around the world. But I'll stop there. But it's infuriating. Well, well, I mean, think of how weak your argument has to be when you have to insert trans issues into the Ukrainian issue. Like, I mean, when you when you are these Ukrainians on the ground are like, you know what? God, if the U.S. could stop focusing so much on trans rights, we'd be so much better off. If if only they weren't trying to make children more comfortable in their bathroom choices in school, then perhaps we wouldn't be being invaded by the country that the former U.S. president tried to basically get annexed by. I mean, to me, that's just a tell, right? Like any time that they just pivot to their wedge issue of the moment, it's like I actually don't have anything of value to add from a a substantive standpoint on this topic. And I know that my side has really been caught uh, in a bad spot. Like that, that's what that means to me. And and I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to dismiss their argument. I actually think this is one that it's just a bad argument. I'm as optimistic as ever that they're showing their ass on this kind of stuff. And, And it'll, it'll take me to our next quote that I wanted to share with you, which is Tucker Carlson on January 24th. He said, But wait a second, why is it disloyal to side with Russia, but loyal to side with Ukraine? He's taken a lot of heat uh, because of his kind of flip-flopping on this. He's now come along and and has basically said, as as a lot of alternative media on the right has come around to the fact that this invasion was happening, a lot of them were saying that this was a wag-the-dog situation and it wasn't going to happen. Now they're, they're sort of trying to take it seriously. But like to this question of why you should care and why siding with Russia is wrong, like there's a couple of things here, you know, one of which we talked about last week, which is this comparison to the Iraq war, right? Now, I was opposed to the Iraq war and I also supported Obama because he was he was against the Iraq war was one of the biggest selling points for him. But the difference between that war and Ukraine is that this Saddam Hussein was a vicious autocrat and the coalition largely trying to take him out were democracies. This is a democracy being invaded by an autocrat. It's the opposite. The other thing is Ukraine in 1991, when it was established, had the third largest supply of nuclear weapons. And then a couple of years later, signed the Non-Proliferation Treaty and gave up its nuclear arsenal in part on a promise that Russia and the United States would look out for it. So we have an obligation to look after Ukraine, even from a strictly realist perspective. They did us a solid by getting rid of their nuclear weapons, and we would send a terrible signal to the North Koreas, the Irans, or anybody else and saying, like, look, like the rational thing would be get nuclear weapons, hold on to them. You can't count on the West to have your back. Also, like, just know who your enemies are, man. I mean, like, if you are a kid in school and there is a kid who bullies you all the time, you don't, like, bring your lunch money because you can't wait to give it to him. Like, that's not what you do. Like, he's a bully. And now he's picking on one of your friends. Like, what kind of a person is like, yeah, I I think it's really savvy and shrewd, like Mike Pompeo put it, for him to pick on my friend. Like, that's just weak. Well, there's a love affair, right? Like, Trump can't stop praising Putin. And members of the right are following his lead. And my sense of this, and I don't want to be hyperbolic, is that they see more commonality with the Putins of the world, the Modis of the world, the Bolsonaros of the world, than they do contemporaries here in the United States. Owning the libs has now become an international phenomenon now. Like they're they're more interested in that than they are in some of these ideals. And to me, that's why I think we have an opening. There are a lot of people in my life who don't pay a lot of attention to politics, who when I I shared, like we did like a clip, uh, lost debate of like the roundup of Tucker changing his mind and all that. People who I would have associated with being kind of center right, replying to that and being like, fuck that guy. 
So that, to me, that tells me that there's something emotional about here it is this democracy where these inspiring Ukrainians who are like using social media to communicate how they're fighting for their country and their democracy. I think some people are waking up here at home saying, oh, wow, like this is real. And we as a party have an opportunity to say, all right, now look at this one party over here. Look at how they're reacting to it. And then look at us. And you might not love everything about us, but the, the choice is pretty clear between these two sides. And to me, that gives us an opening. And you know, this is a pet project of mine to, to make democracy protection a, a, a winning issue at the ballot box. I'm hoping that this becomes more salient for people. Absolutely. And it's a perfect segue into my conversation with Lieutenant Colonel Venman, because we we actually get into that toward the end of the conversation. And I think this conversation we're about to play, I think people are going to realize that this is not anything they've heard anywhere else. And they're going to find it really valuable because I did. Jason, yesterday I was watching Joe Biden give this State of the Union address while you were on an airplane. And I, I just I couldn't help. You know me, I, I don't tweet often, but I had to tweet at you because it really looked like he took his, his athletic greens before he went on, went into the Capitol. That was literally the first piece of news about the speech that I saw. As your podcast partner, I got to tell you, my first thought was Ravi should have put in there athleticgreens.com slash majority. Oh, you got- <laughs> shit. God, you're right. Say that one more time, Jason. Where do people go to get this? Athleticgreens.com slash majority. You know, tons of people take some kind of multivitamin and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, it's athleticgreens.com slash majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Everlywell at-home lab tests give you physician-reviewed results and personalized insights so that you could take action on your health and wellness, all at an affordable and transparent cost. And over 1 million people have trusted Everlywell with their at-home lab testing. With over 30 tests, you'll be able to choose the ones that make the most sense for you. Food sensitivity, metabolism, sleep and stress, and thyroid are just a few of the many options. So here's how it works. Everlywell ships your at-home lab test straight to you with everything needed for a simple sample collection. Using the prepaid shipping label, you mail your test back to a certified lab, and in just days, your physician-reviewed results and actionable insights are sent to your device. And you can share the results with your primary care physician to help guide next steps. And for listeners of the show, Everlywell is offering a special discount of 20% off an at-home lab test at everlywell.com slash majority54. That's everlywell.com slash majority54 for 20% off your at-home lab test. Everlywell.com slash majority54. Colonel, thanks for coming back on the show. It's not been very long since we had you. Yep. Thanks for having me on. Uh, that was under a, it seems like a different world. I think last time we were talking about a, uh, my, my book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it is an entirely different world. And, uh, you know, a lot of people know you from, you know, the hearings and impeachment and all that stuff. That's how people became familiar with you. But what they may forget is that the entire reason you were in that situation to begin with is because uh, in addition to being a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army, you were you were and are an expert uh, on Ukraine and Russia and, na- and national security policy in that part of the world. So that's what you're here to talk about. You are you are our expert on the subject, and you've been all over the place talking about this recently as well. You should be. 
I wanted to start out with something a little different, which is, can you talk about this from the perspective of Ukraine over the last few years, how this has developed and what life has been like there with the specter of war? Because I think for us in the West, it has been sort of this thing that people were vaguely aware of, you know, that because of Crimea. But I think a lot of Americans are really taken by surprise here, and I'm sure Ukrainians are not. So can you talk about it from their perspective? Sure, definitely. Let me just say a word about, um, you know, my background. You know, Lieutenant Colonel is a mid-grade officer in the military. It takes about 15 years, 16, 17 years to get there. But really the reason that I'm on TV now or was at the National Security Council had less to do with my military rank and more to do with my expertise on Russia and Ukraine. So sometimes when people think about lieutenant colonels, like they think, oh, junior White House employee. But I was there as a director for European affairs, which, according to the order of precedence, is the equivalent of a three star. So that's the, 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 the thing that a lot of people don't get. It's uncomfortable to to make that kind of comparison because I'm far from a, a three star, but that's the position I was filling in government. And uh, that's why I found myself in uh, coordinating and then participating in phone calls um, with Donald Trump and meeting with the presidents of foreign countries. But your question about Ukraine and Ukrainian peoples is interesting. So I'm going to try to condense what amounts to a thousand years of history into a relatively short answer, uh, and especially the last couple of years that are most relevant. This is a region where the history of the people and the kinship between the people goes back a thousand years. But it's also a history of deep animus between the Russians and Ukrainians, the predecessors of both these these people of Kiev and Rus, Kiev being the capital of that empire and the capital of Ukraine. Now, that was the dominant force for the first 300 years of history. And it's only after Kiev was sacked by the Mongol hordes in the beginning of the 13th century that there was a major reversal and that, that played out for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's not until, the, and I'm going through this quick, but it's not until the 17th century that Russia actually starts to dominate that region. The reason they do so is because the Ukrainian people or the forebearers of, of modern-day Ukraine were looking for assistance from uh, fellow Slavic states against the Ottoman Empire, against the Polish-Lithuanian Empire. And they basically made this kind of, now in hindsight, this ill-considered deal where they would basically be autonomous under uh, Kremlin power, but they would be able to kind of still maintain their freedom, but, and they would get Russian support. Ultimately, Russia takes this as a signal to dominate uh, Ukraine. And it, it's a long project that lasts hundreds of years with creeping uh, annexation of territory. And meanwhile, there's an, a, a consistent awakening amongst the Ukrainian people for demanding their own sovereignty and independence. For a brief moment, when the Russian empire collapses in 1917, Ukraine de- uh, declares its independence, but then it's crushed very quickly by this massive uh, Red Army that takes over large swaths of the country. And not really until 1945, not until the Second World War, did Russia kind of dominate the entire territory of Ukraine. So there is a really deep spirit of Ukrainian independence that the Russians have consistently tried to suppress. The reason that you had a Soviet Union is because Ukraine demanded some level of autonomy and uh, Vladimir Lenin had to comply with those demands. Instead of having everybody form under a communist Russia, you had 15 republics. So they've been struggling for independence for centuries. They've had independence for the last 30 years, but constantly under the looming threat of Russian irredentism, this idea that what was once Russian territory 
will once again eventually be Russian territory. But slowly, Ukraine continued to slip through Russian fingers. They, they started moving in a Western direction. In 2004, they had a revolution to, to lock in their Western trajectory. It's called the Orange Revolution. The Ukrainians de- demanded a Western orientation. They wanted a different path. They didn't want to be subject to Russian power. And Russia was, was not going to allow it. It was building its military might. It was ratcheting a pressure on its this near abroad, this desire for control over these states, these former Soviet states. And in 2014, you had a situation where the population wanted an association with the EU and uh, the corrupt president of Ukraine proceeded to uh, receive a bribe. Uh, I, I don't recall if it was 10 or 15 billion dollars in exchange for a closer tie in with Ukraine. The Ukrainian people came out on the streets eventually in the hundreds of thousands, to protest. And this, you know, wannabe dictator attempted to repress those protests through violence. And ultimately, that violence led to his ouster. He fled the country, and Ukraine locked in its Western orientation. In the same moment, Russia used military forces to seize and annex Crimea and start a war in eastern Ukraine. And ultimately, what they realized is that they didn't have Ukraine's the largest country in Europe, they didn't bite off enough of Ukraine. They didn't inflict enough damage in 2014 to arrest Ukraine's progress uh, towards the West. And Ukraine has been in a state of war for eight years. That's why, you know, the Ukrainian people were so calm in the days before the war. And they still are, you know, resilient because they've been subject to, to Russian military aggression for a long time. So that's how we find ourselves here. And first of all, that was awesome. Like you just did a thousand years of history in like five minutes. Um and so from the perspective of people in Ukraine, they've lived under this threat for so long. It's interesting to me, like, clearly the Ukrainian military thus far has put up an incredible fight. And what it makes me think about is the fact that they are a military that has pretty well trained, equipped, and planned for a single combat scenario over the last several years. I suppose that that is sort of true of the political scenario for the people. Like this has been at the center of everything for them for the last seven years, right? That, that is, uh, I think we should not uh, somehow kind of uh, overlook the fact that this is shocking for the Ukrainian people that they're now in a state of full scale war. I think even the Ukrainians probably uh, underestimated themselves. It's something that I figured uh, I've in my research, I've uh, discovered that they, had a kind of a more limited vision because they were fighting for independence and survival uh, for so, a lot of their recent history, that their vision has been limited to, you know, just making it by resisting Russian pressure, you know, taking incremental steps with regards to reforms and anti-corruption. I think that's all changed. The Ukrainian people are starting to feel their power. They're not just fighting for, for themselves, they're fighting for the entire free world. And they're standing up against the second largest military in the world, which on paper shouldn't happen. Russia is a vastly superior military in terms of capabilities, uh, but they under we, we also sometimes underestimate the importance of morale, the fighting spirit. And that's really what's been decisive. The heroism of unarmed civilians standing in front of tanks and armored vehicles to prevent their passage. I saw some footage today. One of those crowds of civilians was was fired on with casualties by by callous Russian soldiers that were there under this theory of peacekeepers. Instead, they're they're killing uh, unarmed civilians. 
So that's, that's what's unfolding. That's galvanized the population, but it's also galvanized the world in a way that we really, frankly, didn't expect. What additional sanctions or actions would you like to see? And that's question A. Question B, can you detail for people the impact that sanctions make? Because sanctions are a, a sort of obsequious, abstract idea for most Americans. Certainly the Europeans have stepped up in a massive way with regards to sanctions. They've, they're ahead of us. And unfortunately, I, I w- would I support this president. I support President Biden, but uh, I don't frankly feel like there's nearly enough leadership coming from the, this administration. We should be leading, and we're not. We're extremely reluctant to do anything really substantial because Russia is effective at saber-rattling and uh, using the, you know, this nuclear signaling that is meaningless, frankly, in a lot of ways. It's, it's meaningful in that we can't discount it entirely. Uh, Russia's engaged in a major war that they're not doing well in right now, and things could spiral in a, a, out of control. But the war, longer it goes on, the longer this war goes on, the more unpredictable Russia's actions are. So action on the part of the U.S. now with support to Ukraine with regards to military assistance could end this before Russia starts to become more irrational and, and erratic. But there are other things that are now coming to bear. These sanctions, they're going to have a long-term effect. They're punishing Russia's economy. They're punishing a population that is not really aware of the fact that there's a large-scale war going on on their borders. That information is only starting to creep in slowly. That and the economic impact is going to really destabilize Russia and Putin's regime and, and uh, compel them to be erratic. But it gets d- more difficult the longer this goes on. So that's the effect of sanctions, the practical effect. They're isolated. You can't conduct basic transactions. Any of those goods that people are used to are, are cut off. Any of the goods that, uh, with regards to the comforts that we enjoy here that the Russians have also with regards to technology, those are gone. They're going to run out of the kind of the inventory of parts to maintain planes. They're going to run out of, of the inventory of parts to maintain a aerospace industry. But that plays out over time. And time could be working against us because as Russia sustains losses over time and you know kind of starts to price in all of these issues they're going to continue to escalate upwards whereas a you know significant short defeat in the short term would cause them to really drastically recalculate their approach entirely so what can we do more this is a very important question on the sanction side there's still more that we can do and i think the europeans are are prepared to to go there sanctioning the trade of oil and gas that we could provision to Europe to to let them survive through the the winter would eliminate you know basically the the biggest budgetary inputs in for, for Russia. On the military front, more javelins, more stingers. We were too late in coming with those. Last thing I want to mention is there are the biggest shortfalls that Ukraine suffers right now are they had basically no air force to speak of, uh, no helicopters, uh, limited air defense capabilities. And Russia has massive fires advantages. So like long range fires, cruise missiles. So the kinds of things that would be useful right now is provisioning them with what we call UCAVs, unmanned combat aerial vehicles. And there are brilliant ways to for them to implement them immediately and achieve effects and start to go after Russia's planes on the ground, Russia's uh, ballistic missiles that are uh, destroying cities and things of that nature. That would be a huge advantage to sharply change Russia's calculus about this. And it's not us. It would be the Ukrainians doing this with the arms that we supply. And it's well within the bounds of how this, these things were done historically. 
Think about the Russians flying planes against our forces in Korea. It was Russian pilots. It was Russian planes. In Vietnam, it was Russian air defenses that knocked out, you know, our leaders, John McCain. It was, those were Russian systems and Russian operators. And we provided arms to the Mujahideen. These are not, these are not escalatory in any significant way. And Russia is not suicidal. They're not looking to end their existence through a nuclear war. So there are ways to do this that manage the risks in spite of the fact that Russia is doing a nuclear saber rattling and, uh, you know, doing these nuclear threats, which when we're not even doing much, we have no, no fallback positions. That's probably one of the dangers of, of doing too little right now. No leverage is basically what you're saying. Yeah, no leverage. Yes. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I have a quick, funny, therapy-ish story to tell. Uh, the other night, I was at um, a political fundraiser, the first in-person political fundraiser I've been to in like three years. And so there were uh, several people there who had come in from further into Kansas who weren't as familiar with me. And I'm chit-chatting with these people beforehand. And th- one of them asked me like, oh, so do you think you'll ever run again? And I was like, oh, you know, maybe, but I haven't done one of these in a while. And they go, are you having some PTSD about it? And I was like, uh, you know, not really. And, and as you know, like it doesn't bother me. Um, because I know it's just, it's a, it's a colloquialism. It's just something people say. If, if nothing else, I just felt bad thinking about what was going to happen when I walked away from that conversation and they start talking to somebody else and somebody else ends up talking about like me over the last few years. And I just was like, I felt bad. Like they're going to feel bad because the other thing that happened was I had, uh, made a reference to the idea that, you know, I used to do these a lot, but that was before I did a lot of therapy, kind of making a joke, assuming they knew my story at the beginning of the conversation. Uh, and and so I just think in general, I don't know what happened with those poor folks afterwards, but they I wanted them to know in case they come across this show, like I, uh, you know, wasn't bothered by it. Because I think it's really important that we normalize and remove the stigma around going to therapy. And that's why this sponsor is so important. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. You don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and majority 54 listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash M54. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash M54. As far as the situation on the ground, which changes every day, I think there's a lot of people who are trying very hard to follow the resistance against the Russians, but are, are wary of the fact that you know, there's a very effective, uh, and this is a good thing, like PSYOP, PR, information uh, operation campaign coming out of Ukraine, as well as Russia. Where where do you go? What are the most uh, reliable sources for you? There's a guy named Mike Kaufman, who's, who's a consummate expert on this. There's a, name, a guy named Rob Lee. Uh, and then if you kind of uh, look through there, the people that they follow, you could get an indication of who else to, to look into the space. Uh, you know, your, your, your listeners can feel free to follow me, but I tend to buy in on the Russian, on the Ukrainian reports because slowly but surely we're seeing these reports substantiated. Nobody believed this report yesterday of like 800 vehicles destroyed in the city, not too far away from Kiev, this little village. And people are like, you know, how's that possible? And now you see footage coming in of like these just absolutely demolished uh, Russian formations 
And there, there are these things. So I think the Ukrainians are trying to do a, a pretty good job and, and are trying to do the best they can to filter it. But it's it's a war zone. It's the fog of war. Let me ask about the way this is playing out in, in American domestic politics, right? And I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but I, I also I want to take it in a slightly different direction than I imagine most of the interviews have gone with you, which is this. We've heard, you know, people like Tucker Carlson, he's basically just saying pro-Russian stuff. And increasingly, a lot of you know, Republican politicians are doing the same. And what I reflexively see happening, what I see, you know, people on the on the left doing reflexively is just calling all of these folks Russian agents and saying, oh, they're all they're all paid off by Russia and all this. I mean, clearly that cannot be the case. But also what I think the American conversation is missing, and I'm curious as to your thoughts on this, is that the reason people like Josh Hawley or Tucker Carlson or the rest of these people are so inclined to side with Putin, it may be a much simpler reason, which is that there's basically two political parties in the world right now. There's people who are pro-democracy and there's authoritarians. And is it somewhat as simple as there are people in the Republican Party who are just sort of in the same political ideology as Putin in a way? Uh, I would say it's even simpler than that. It's the standard fare of profit self-service or fear that's driving folks. So when people describe, you know, these Tucker Carlson or Donald Trump as Putin's agents, my belief is that they are in that they're kind of unwitting agents. They're carrying their own water, they're serving their own interests, but they're also serving the interests of Vladimir Putin is what they don't realize or that they realize but they think that there's no cost. Now they realize there's a cost in blood because these people are, are not necessarily the most sophisticated actors. They don't know that uh, a massive war is is looming, in, in, and they think it's just a rhetorical tool to like knock down President Biden, and they could say this without cost. There's a cost. What American politicians say matters. It matters around the world. It matters to Vladimir Putin that's doing a temperature check on whether this is a good idea, and uh, here's traditionally the hawkish party against a Russian aggression say Russia's the good guy. To him, that means that the repercussions for his attack on Ukraine are potentially going to be limited. He thought that this was going to be a cakewalk. And the reason that he did that is because the signals coming from these folks, even days before, were green lights or uh, blinking yellow lights saying, no cost, go ahead, move. In reality, these folks are just, again, Donald Trump really admires the power that Vladimir Putin wields. and. Donald Trump has captured the Republican Party. So you could either follow Donald Trump's lead or you could be ostracized and you could be you could you uh, have you risk your uh, electability. And people have followed the probably the most disruptive president in history down the primrose path. They dug their hole and now they're going to have to lie in it. Well, and to jump off on that, you know, when when people who listen to this show are looking to persuade other people in their lives to care about this, it's difficult sometimes to get Americans of any political persuasion to really connect with something happening elsewhere in the world. Is the simplest argument here simply that, look, what has been going on in America over the last several years is not a uniquely American thing. There is a wave of authoritarianism sweeping throughout the world, and we have to pick which side we're on. And we have to pick the side of democracy. And that can be things like fighting voter suppression and everything else here, because that's the only way we can put ourselves in a position to actually defend other democracies. That, that is exactly right. 
And I definitely want to spend a minute talking about that. But let me start with something even more fundamental. We are on the edge of something that is frightening. The largest country in the world has attacked the largest country in Europe. This is not going to be a limited conflict. Right now, the sanctions that have been levied to punish Russia for this, this, this heinous attack on uh, stability in the world, are the most serious means of economic warfare to ever unfold in the world. And Russia is not going to take that lying down. Nor is Europe going to take the fact that tens of thousands, actually hundreds of thousands of refugees are flying in, uh, flooding into their territory, destabilizing those countries, and that Russia's belligerence could actually affect their interests. And this is a recipe for disaster. This is probably one of the major flaws with you know where we ended up with the Biden administration. And it's not entirely their fault. It's the fact that they've they looked at the situation through the soda straw of two decades of failed policy with Russia. And when you have your blinders on like that, you basically continue pursuing a policy of trying to engage with Russia instead of seeing how the entire landscape has shifted and that we were heading towards a confrontation. I do have to absolutely note that if this was incremental along Bush-Obama tracks, think about like, you know, inching across, you have this leap forward towards instability because Donald Trump weakened our alliances. He, he bred uh, discord in the U- U.S., hyperpolarization. So you, you're slowly moving along. And then all of a sudden with Trump, you like lurch forward in a huge way. And then Biden picks it up. And then you're still operating on this old paradigm instead of seeing seeing the picture for what it was. But I, I think the, the, the fundamental thing that we have to realize is that this directly implicates the U.S. We are much closer to a significant war with Russia because we haven't done enough than we were before this. And this directly affects U.S. national security. There is a legitimate scenario where even though we don't want U.S. forces to, to be involved, we might get dragged in. We didn't want to be involved in World War I. We didn't want to be involved in World War II. But the scale of those cataclysmic events dragged us in. So that on that basis, American people should take this seriously. This is a, a battle between democracy and authoritarianism. This is a battle between the kinds of freedoms that we enjoy in the United States, the right to to vote and select our leaders. It's the struggle between that and a, a authoritarianism that could at any moment on a whim change the direction of policy and wield the, the rule of law to punish its citizens. But we also have a obligation to support Ukraine from a value standpoint, because they embody the values that so many of our forebearers have bled for. They embody that. They are leading the the free world in a struggle against authoritarianism. We want those kinds of people in in our camp. We want the Ukrainian people, that blood, that energy, that fierce determination to defend democracy in our camp. Those people will add to our strength. Let me close with a question that's like, on the more personal side of all this, and I'll start with it from, from my point of view. My wife came to the United States as a refugee of religious persecution from Ukraine, Soviet Ukraine, in 1989. And I know you have a, a similar family history. And, you know, the here in Kansas City, the, the community of uh, people who came here as refugees at that time from that place uh, and are now citizens refer to themselves as, as Russians, right? Like they're Americans, but like it's the, the, the Russian community here in Kansas city. And that is because they grew up there in, in the, it was Soviet. They had to speak Russian. 
I mean, it it was all considered Russia at that time. And on top of that, particularly for the Jewish community, which, you know, of which our family and, and a lot of the folks here, they weren't considered Ukrainian. They weren't considered Russian. Their papers said Jewish. And so what's been interesting to me over the last week or so has been that my in-laws, for instance, who have always talked about Ukraine, where they're from, they've always said that place didn't want us. So we're not going to go back. And now I feel this shift where it's like, my kids are not half Russian. My kids are half Ukrainian. And so what it makes me think about is everybody is very aware of President Zelensky now around the world. And, and, and he is, he's clearly, he's heroic. But what I think about is that this place, that because of the laws, because of the way things were set up, my wife and my in-laws felt that it was not a place for them because they were Jews, that there was no opportunity for them so much that they they fled and they came here, that, that President Zelensky is a Jewish man who was elected in a runoff with 72% of the vote by the people of Ukraine. That is remarkable to me. It is remarkable. I think I got, I mean, this is, I'm glad we're leaving off here. I'll tell you, I have, I've had my own evolution because I thought of myself as, uh, you know, Soviet, Jewish refugee or Russian Jewish refugee because of partially because of the Russian propaganda around the evil fascist Ukrainians. And as I began to learn more, I I kind of I recognized that that was just that was just Russian propaganda. And I slowly moved to a uh, identity of accepting, you know, my, my background is Ukrainian, Ukrainian born. If I'm in a position where I have to describe myself, I describe myself, of course, as American. But I'll just d- say uh, I'm an American of Ukrainian Jewish origin or something like that. I feel this deep swelling of pride right now, and that Ukraine, the Ukrainian people are standing up for for the country, where I I've, I've now come to do what so many Italian Americans or Irish Americans do. They talk about their kind of their forebearers. So I'm a Ukrainian American Jewish refugee from the Soviet Union. I deeply feel that, and I think that's that's personal to me because of my background, but I think Americans should embrace that we're all Ukrainians at the moment. We're all there with, with those folks in spirit. And we're going to, we're going to do something to help them contribute to surviving this terrible war and coming out and adding to the strength of democracy on the far end. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Thank you, Colonel. Thank you for having me on. Thanks again to Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. Uh, that is one of the best conversations I've had on this topic uh, in the last couple of weeks. And it's something I've been talking about a lot. All right. Next week, I'll be checking in on how Ravi and I are doing on our pledge to persuade. So if you have had any success or at least started a conversation with one of your conservative friends or relatives, we would love to hear about your progress too. Uh, leave us a voicemail. Let us know how it's going for you. 508-687-2589. 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman is at A. Vindman on Twitter. And you can get his book here right matters in your local bookstores the kansas city hustlers are at kc hustlers on instagram and twitter our show is at majority 54 on twitter remember we all have a platform make sure to use yours today majority 54 is a wonder media network production it's produced by grace lynch Edie allard and adesua agbenile theme music provided by kemet coleman and special thanks to diana kander oh hi true you scared me what's up buddy true's homesick today You made a robot thing? I will absolutely come down and see it in about 20 or 30 minutes. 
I will be there. Will you shut this door and I will be there in a few minutes? Okay, well, there you got an interesting yeah. postscript there. If you there want you to go. This All uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> he just scared me. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.